You are listening to content from Christ Our Hope Anglican Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. For more information, you can find us on the web at ChristOurHopeAnglican.org. And now, here's today's message. It will come as absolutely no surprise to any of you who know me that as a kid, I looked forward to that part of the school year where we got to take standardized tests. (laughs) This was the day before computers, and the day before computers ruined everything. So there was a certain joy of going to school with your number two pencil, and then going into that sharpener on the wall, and like that satisfying grind that it would get. And you come back with the sharp pencil and sit in your seat. Um, And then there came the lucky time where you got to bubble in all the little bubbles. You start with the flipping over the booklet that they gave you to the back, and you got to bubbling your name on the back, and then you had to sit and wait patiently for everybody to finish, because some people had longer names than others, um, until the teacher gave you the okay, and it was time to start, and you get to flip open your booklet, and there were questions and answers and things you could bubble and fill in. And for me, my very favorite part of those standardized tests is there were stories. I mean, I got to sit in school and read stories. Now, they're reading comprehension tests, so you know, there was something I was supposed to be doing with those stories, but I got to come and read these stories, and they'd ask questions about it afterwards. And of course, there are questions that are just purely factual. Can you like, actually read and just take in the information? And then they'd have a couple of comprehension questions to see if you got the meaning of the story. And I haven't stopped loving reading stories and trying to understand what's going on inside of them. Now, those little stories that happened in those standardized tests were always really short and simple because you've got about five minutes for each one to be able to completely take in everything that it has to offer. But good stories you can return to again and again and again. You can mine their depths. And this is true whether they are short or long. C.S. Lewis has a quote where he says that the only real literate man is one who rereads books. That if you just read a book one time, you don't really know it at all. You haven't actually had the opportunity to draw everything that there is from it. So he said that if there's a really good book in your life, those who read really good books should read them 10, 20, 30 times over the course of their life to be able to draw everything that there is from it. The Bible is, of course, a really good book. And the Good Samaritan, this parable that we heard today, is a really good story. It's a story that almost everyone is familiar with at some level. Whether you have grown up in the church and heard that story in Sunday school and read it in children's Bibles and then read it in the actual uh, the text in Luke, there's so many ways that you could have encountered the text within the church. But even if you didn't go to the church, most everybody knows something about the Good Samaritan. You could look up the Good Samaritan in the dictionary and it would tell you that it is a person who helps others without expecting any sort of repayment for themselves. You could go into almost any major city and find a Good Samaritan hospital or a group that is raising charities that has Samaritan in the name. You could watch major cultural events like the oft-abused finale of Seinfeld and find that the story of the Good Samaritan is actually central to the plot because they just assume that everybody's going to have at least some sense of an idea of what the Good Samaritan is. And so I think that this story is worth 
returning to and looking at, and we can look at it at that level that the culture looks at it and see what's the first thing that we get from the story. But then if we look at it again and again and again, we can go deeper and deeper and find that this is a story that has layers and rewards multiple meanings. So we're going to do that today. We're going to look at the story and we're going to hopefully unfold various layers. So we're first going to look at it at a first reading and see kind of what comes out of it. And then we're going to go deeper and deeper and deeper and see what we find as we keep on diving in to this very, very good story. The first thing you probably notice if you're reading it is this the basic plot of the story is that there's a man who's going from Jerusalem down to Jericho. Um, this would have been, as Jesus told this story, a road that people knew was dangerous. There were cliffs and caves and things off along the side of the road, so it was a place where robbers and highwaymen would wait and hopefully be able to sometimes take somebody and it would be a dangerous journey. And so this, wasn't, this was a pretty well-known environment. And as he's going along, he in fact does run into a problem. He runs into robbers and he's all alone. And so he's left beaten. He's, everything that he had is taken from him. And then two people pass by. The first is a priest, probably having completed his time in Jerusalem and then going back to wherever else he might live. Um, he would come up for service and then leave. And he sees the man and he passes him by. The second person is a Levite, also somebody who worked as part of the, the temple work. He had other specific roles that he was going to fill, but he's a deeply religious person, someone who is well acquainted with the law, someone who understands what's going on. He also passes the man by. And then there is a Samaritan. And this person sees the man at the side of the road. And he picks him up and he helps him. He binds his wounds. And he takes him to an inn, which is not sort of the reputable hotel that we would know of. Most people, if they were going to visit some place, they would go to family members. They would stay with family if they were going into a new town. Um, but here, there's no one to show hospitality. This is for those who maybe don't have family. They don't have those who can show them hospitality. So he's going to him, and he's, he's handing him off to the inn, and he says, I'll pay whatever it costs for you to care for him. Here's two denarii, which are two days' wages. But if there's more, basically I'm giving you an open check. Whatever it takes, you can, you can spend it to make sure that this person is taken care of. And he goes on his way. And at the first level, the level that really that most of our culture sees it is this is a good moral tale about the way that we should behave to those who are in need. And it works as a story at that level. We, of course, if we are the one in need, we'd love to have somebody actually stop and help us. And there are so many people that we come into and encounter in our day-to-day -day life who are in need and having a story that reminds us we want to be people who actually care for them. We want to be people who see those in need and don't just turn aside and look the other way. And we don't want to use our religion as an excuse of I'm, I'm a good enough person, I'm doing enough, I'm busy doing other things that God has called me to, and so I'm just going to ignore people and just pass by and not show them mercy. It's a good story at that level. It's a good reminder, and it's, it's why it has sort of burned itself into our cultural consciousness is because we want stories that remind us of how we should behave. Stories that remind us of the laws that we should follow, God's law and just a law of common love for humanity. 
but the story has more to it as well. We can go one level back, one level deeper, and we can remember that this story was told in response to a question. The context makes all the difference when we're looking at stories, whether you're looking at it in the Bible or you're looking at it in a book. And the immediate question that was asked is, who is my neighbor? The person who was talking to Jesus was a lawyer, which means that they were somebody who was an expert in the Jewish law, an expert in the Torah. And so they had come and they had talked to Jesus and they had correctly identified that the core of the commandments in the, in the Old Testament, the core of what they had to do was to love God entirely with all of their heart and soul and mind and strength and to love their neighbor as themselves. But they're wondering just how far does that go? Who is my neighbor? And the answer that this lawyer was probably expecting was those who are part of the Jewish community. This is my neighbor. Those who, who at least, maybe not only ethnic Jews, but at least those who have chosen to come and sort of adopt the laws and the customs and the ways that we live. And that gives a sort of limit to how far I have to go in my love and care for others. But in this story... It is not just uh, limited to those who are Jews. There's a Samaritan who features at the center of the story. And of course, in our culture now, a Samaritan generally means, when you're talking about that, a good person. But in then, at that time, it was somebody who was hated, somebody who was theologically wrong. The priest and the Levite had good theology. They knew what it was to follow God. They understood the law. The Samaritan didn't. And even Jesus in his other encounters with the Samaritans would say, basically, you got it wrong. I don't approve of your theology. I don't approve of the way that you think that you should worship God. You're not doing things right. And yet this is the person who was wrong in their theology and hated because they were not purely ethnic Jews. They were mixed and they, they had sort of gone off and rejected parts of the scriptures and only held to the teachings of Moses. And because of that, they were looked down upon, they were hated, they were called names, to the point where when Jesus was talking with a Samaritan woman at the well, his disciples were like, what are you doing even talking to somebody who's a Samaritan? When Samaritans rejected the gospel, his, those were the people that his disciples said, should we just like call down fire on the town? Just get rid of them altogether? Just burn them off the face of the earth. And it's this person that Jesus puts at the heart of his story who is showing mercy to a Jew. And so this question of who is my neighbor that is being asked when we look at this story, it expands beyond those who are part of our inner circle, beyond those who are part of our family, beyond those who are part of my church, and it essentially says everyone, even your enemy, is your neighbor. So when you have this call upon your life to love your God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, if you are going to be faithful to that command, you have to love the person who is sitting in the pew, or not pews, chair next to you, or chair behind you. You have to love the person who is, disagrees with you politically. You have to love the person maybe who loudly advocates for something that you believe is wrong. 
to love the person whose theology is just plain wrong. That love doesn't have a limit that we would like to draw around it. That love extends to everyone. And this is the charge and the call that God has placed upon our life with the commandment that he gives. Love your neighbor as yourself. Isaac Asimov actually wrote about the story of the Good Samaritan, which he's a famous science fiction writer, so he's not one you would expect to be writing about it. But he had a little essay that he wrote that talked about um, some of the difficulties of non-translation, that we have stories like this and we miss the point of them because we don't understand what was going on in the culture in which they were written. And he, he was writing at a time where it was um, the civil rights movement was still... Um, just in its very early stages. And he basically says, to tell this story, think about like the mayor and the pastor in a small southern town in the 40s, walking along the road and ignoring this person who was injured. And then a black sharecropper comes along and he's the one who sees the man and helps him. And this is the sign of love. Not only is it, is it a sign of love, your enemies love those who have abused you. Those who have looked at you as less than human. Those who have cast their hatred upon you, love them too. Love your neighbor. And at this level, the story draws us into deeper love, into a deeper understanding of the law and ultimately of the gospel. But then we can go another layer deeper as well. And the, the deeper we go, it doesn't invalidate anything that's above. We're still supposed to show kindness and mercy. We're still, still supposed to love even those who are enemies, those who hate us, those who have persecuted us. But we also see why he asked the question. When he asked the question of who is my neighbor, he was seeking to justify himself. And now we start to see the way that Jesus is digging at the heart of the person who asked the question and probably digging into our own heart as well. Because the truth is, he wants to put a boundary upon the law. There's probably two things going on when it says he wants to justify himself. One is he wants to be right. He wants to be able to say, I have followed the law. I have done things properly. I've got it right. And so, I'm justified in the way that I live. Another aspect of it, because we see at the very beginning of the story that he stood up to test Jesus, another aspect of what's going on is probably that this is an honor-shame culture. And so since he's testing Jesus, part of what would happen in an honor-shame culture in these public engagements is basically he's trying to get one up on Jesus. He's trying to take what he knows about the way that Jesus talks and teaches and like catch him in making a mistake in his interpretation of the law. Because if he can catch Jesus, this famous teacher, in a mistake, then he can rise in esteem just as Jesus goes down and people look upon him. And so he's trying to justify himself. He comes up with the right answer. Jesus gives him credit. And so he says, okay, this is good, but I bet I can go one further and make you try to answer this question that I, you can't really answer, right? you're not going to be able to give a satisfactory answer. You're either going to draw, uh, say that you're supposed to love everybody, and therefore people are going to reject that out of hand if you say that you're supposed to love the Romans or you're supposed to love Samaritans. Or you're going to put a limit on it, and I can sort of catch you in making a mistake in the interpretation of the law. And instead, Jesus makes him confront in his own, as he's telling the story, he has to confront the fact that he looks at the story and gives the answer. It's the one who shows mercy who's the neighbor. 
He can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. He has tried to test Jesus to find some fault in him. And instead, Jesus, as he so often does, pierces and says, This is your heart. Do you see where it is broken? Do you see where it is off? And it doesn't quite match with what God's desire for you is. You can even name it, just like that passage in Deuteronomy that we read, where in the law that is written, he says, it's not so far off from you that you can't understand it. It's not in some high and lofty place in the heavens or across the sea. This is the word that is given to you, and you can understand it. And this lawyer, as he talks to Jesus, is forced to admit, I understand, but I can't live up to that standard. And what is true of him is true of all of us. We find again and again, when we come to God and we try to justify ourselves using the law and say, I have kept this one. I've held up to all of these standards. Anytime that I try to use the law as a way to justify myself, I find that I have come short. That there is more that I need to do. Reminds me of the weeds in my yard. We bought our house, some of you have driven by my house, and so you're laughing because you know what I'm talking about. Um, we bought our house about a year and a half ago, and we bought it in the wintertime. And so we were, um, thought that the yard looked like it was in decent shape. And then as we came into the spring and the summer, we found that we have like a bumper crop of bindweed. And we have <laughs> weeds that grow up to like, if they're left for a couple of weeks, uh, they grow up to like this high, and they just keep on growing. And so we have done what we're trying, the best we can, we're tackling, we're trying to pull these weeds. And we're trying not to like just broadly apply herbicides. We know that's not great for the land, and it's not great for, for different animals, and so we're trying to handle it manually. And what happens is that we get to a point where we think we're doing pretty well. Like we're pulling the weeds, maybe at the beginning of the spring, it's like I can stay on top of this. And then the weather warms up, and maybe even there's a little bit of rain, and suddenly it all takes up, and I go, I can't pull weeds fast enough. And this is what it's like when we come to the law and try to justify ourselves by the law, is there might be a little time where it seems like things are going pretty well. I'm keeping up with what's going on in my own heart, but then it just grows, and it's faster than I can, can pull the weeds. I can't keep up. And this is another way that the story moves us. Not only are we supposed to show kindness to everybody, show love to everybody, not only are we supposed to go even deeper and love those who hate us, we also are confronted with the fact when we look at this story that we cannot fully keep the standards that God sets for us. When I try to justify myself using the law, I fail again and again and again. And if this was just now an encouragement to live better, try harder, it would be a good story with value. But there's more than that. Because when we step another level deeper, and look at the context a little bit wider out, we see that initially the question that the lawyer asked Jesus was not, who is my neighbor? That's not where he started. 
The first question that the lawyer asked Jesus is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In the language of our century, it might be, what do I need to do to be saved? And he thinks he's got the right answer. He gets that initial moment of approval and perhaps feels good about the fact that he knows the law well. He has interpreted it correctly according to this rabbi. And he's feeling a sense of, you know, I love my fellow Jews. I do it well. Maybe he tithes well, as the Pharisees did. Maybe he even shows mercy and compassion upon those beggars in the square. But Jesus confronts him with a part of his heart that he can't even bring himself to say the name of the Samaritan. And he confronts him with that part of his heart. And suddenly, you can kind of see how as you look at this story, it all comes tumbling down. Because now the standard is set out of his reach. He thought that he had it. He thought that he was going to be able to keep the law and he was going to be able to say that I have done what is necessary to inherit eternal life. And Jesus pierces his heart and says, no, you can't. And can any of us? Can any of us live up to that standard? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind. Now love your neighbor as yourself and everybody's your neighbor. I think weeds are bad, think about even just walking through a city like Fort Collins. How many people do we pass who have needs? Could I stop and love every one of them in the way that I perhaps should? Not even if I stop. Do I look at them and understand them as people who are made in God's image every single time? Do I show love for them? Or do I just sort of avert my eyes so that I'm not embarrassed? I don't have to worry about getting caught in a conversation or being asked to give when I don't have anything to give or don't want to give anything. And so ultimately, when we're looking at this story, we find ourselves not just confronted with our inadequacy in the law. We find ourselves as those who desperately need mercy. If we take a deeper look, we understand this is not just telling us how to behave, but we can see ourselves in that man on the road. And understand that we cannot attain salvation on our own. We cannot get to where we want to go. We are waylaid and injured and beaten. My heart is broken in ways that I cannot perfectly serve God. I cannot perfectly love God or love my neighbor. I need help. Who will help me? Who can save me? And ultimately, it's only Jesus himself. I don't know that Jesus expected this man to understand all that meaning at the time he told the story. I think that he did want him to be confronted with what was in his heart and then perhaps go deeper because Jesus is right there. And maybe he could say at that moment, I can't do this. What can I do? But he doesn't. But we can. 
because God so loved the world, the whole world, that he sent his only son. We have no real claim on him. We were enemies of God. While we were, while we were sinners, we were enemies of God. And still, in many ways, if you don't know Jesus, you find yourself as an enemy of God. Even if you say that it's somebody who you respect him, but like if you don't obey and understand what he has given and what he has done, it was sin in our heart makes us enemies of God. And yet, he stopped for us. He came to earth on our behalf. And just as that Samaritan paid a lavish price, an open-ended ticket to be able to save the man on the highway. Two days' wages and then more. Let me go to the disreputable little inn and say, whatever it takes, God in Jesus has done whatever it takes to save us. He sent his own son that he might die so that we could live. You are the one who needs mercy. And God has shown it to you in Jesus. Then as we sort of move back up the layers, that changes everything else. Because now we're not trying to keep the law as those who are using the law to justify ourselves. Now we understand that we are keeping the law as those who have been shown mercy. And so when I am called to love my neighbor as I love, my, as, as I love myself, I can understand that this is a fellow person made in the image of God who needs mercy. And I can show them mercy as one who has been shown mercy. And I can bring them the good news of the ultimate mercy that has been shown to me and to them. And that's true whether we're talking about unborn children. I can show them mercy. Or mothers. I can show them mercy. Because I have been shown mercy. And I know that we are all in need of mercy. Or if I'm talking about the people who are loudly advocating for the right to abortion. I can show them mercy because I have been one that has been shown mercy. And I can love them as God has loved them because I am one that has been shown and given that love. And it's true when I pass someone in Fort Collins who's asking for food or money on the side of the road. I can't stop every single time. But I can look at them as somebody whom God loves. And I can show them mercy. Or my own family members. When I'm angry with them, I can remember that I'm one that has been shown mercy. whether we're talking about those who are far or those who are near, this is the charge that God puts upon us ultimately, is to show mercy as we have been shown mercy. A lavish love 
that God himself has shown us what that looks like. And so we can end with the same words that Jesus ended with. You have been shown mercy, so go and do likewise. Amen. This sermon is an audio ministry from Christ Our Hope Anglican Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. If you are in the area and would like to learn more about how you can worship with us in person or online, please visit us on the web at www.christourhopeanglican.org.